This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Early in World War II, Colonel Evans Carlson was already a seasoned and decorated Marine commander. In the late 1930s, Carlson spent time in China observing commando tactics and became convinced that the U.S. Marines needed an elite corps within the corps to be known as the Marine Raiders. Mike Edson would lead one band of men and Carlson the other. Despite the Marine Corps' misgivings, the first units were recruited and trained in 1942. These units served with distinction in Guadalcanal and the Macon Island raids, among others. William Lansford was among the first to join the Raiders, but his path to success was not an easy one. A Marine Raider was a necessity that came up shortly after uh, Pearl Harbor when we were more or less, as they say, in boxing parlance on our riding our bicycle around the ring, you know, so that the other guys couldn't catch us. But at that time, you know, the, everybody, the, the morale was very low. We'd gotten clobbered at uh, Pearl Harbor and and uh, we didn't have the we didn't have the men or equipment ready to to really counter effectively. Yet there was a need to build the morale of the country, of the people, and so the the raiders were created for that purpose, and and uh, we were patterned on the concept of the British commando, and. Uh, in the early days, when they decided to do the Raiders, when uh, President Roosevelt gave the okay, they, the men who were going to lead the Raider battalions, you know, at that time chiefly uh, uh, Carlson, Evans F. Carlson, and, uh, and uh, Edson, who was forming the first Raiders in the East Coast, uh, Sent people to send some of their officers and and NCOs to England to train under the uh, commandos, and came back and taught us some of that stuff. And then these men who were very experienced, both Carlson and and uh, Edson, uh, who had served in in the Banana Wars and knew what guerrilla warfare meant. Carlson had also served in China with the Eighth Root Army. Uh, they began adding their own touches to the Raiders. Uh, you know, the configuration was uh, what was needed. You know, would we be able to to pull some quick raids and get out of there before they caught us? And and the idea was really, I think, it's a, a morale building and and media catching sort of. Uh, and that's basically what we were meant to do, and to sort of like. You know, hold the enemy off at arm's length while the regular Marines, you know, got up to strength. I'd always wanted to be in the military, and uh, in, in uh, 1990, a lot of Depression kids went into the CC camps here in California, I suppose all over the country. So uh, I dropped out of school and went into the CC camps, and it was a great place to train young guys, you know, 16, 17 years of age, to go right into the service. And this is, we're talking 1938, 39, when the war was on already in Europe. So when I got out, I, I uh, 
try to get in the Marines, and I was too skinny, and they wouldn't take me. And I tried to get in the Navy, and they wouldn't take me. Nobody would have me. I was underweight and skinny looking, and even though I'd been in the CC camps and was doing, uh, I was a lumberjack there. <laughs> Sounds silly, but, but anyhow, uh, I was coming out of the Marine Corps recruiting office in downtown LA for the umpteenth time, and I saw this great, big, massive looking guy with all kinds of gold stripes and all. He was a Marine sergeant, and he said, you know, he said, you've been hanging around here a lot, son. I said, yes, sir. You're trying to get in the Marines? Yes, sir. He said, any luck? No, sir. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, you go, you go down to Inglewood. There's a reserve company there. There's a reserve unit there, the 13th Machine Gun Battalion Reserves. He said, you go there and sign up. And he said, in two weeks, you'll be in the Marine Corps. So I did that. I went and I, I came to Inglewood and I signed up there. And they issued me a uniform and a rifle and all that stuff. And almost two weeks to the day, they mobilized us. And we're talking 1940 now. And in 1940, I, I ended up in the Marines and directly out of boot camp, they had a, they had a, a list on the bulletin board. And you could sign up to go to China or you could sign up to, to join the uh, the 6th Marines and uh, the regiment, which was forming then. And, uh, and I signed up to go to China because every Marine and sailor wanted to go to China. That was the place to be. Well, guess where I ended up? I ended up in Iceland. I got back from Iceland 10 months later and went into the... And, and, and they isolated us in this camp back in the U.S. They put us in, I think it was Camp Elliott. And they put us in this isolated camp. We couldn't get out of there. And we had nothing to do but hang around the barracks all the time. And we began hearing about this outfit, you know, called the Raiders and the Commandos. And they said it was a suicide outfit. And the guys that volunteered were volunteering uh, to die and all sorts of melodramatic stuff. So another guy and I got very curious. Yeah, I had very bad luck with with top sergeants in those days. I was a PFC. And I thought, well, if I can get it out of this outfit, you know, I'll be ahead of the game. So I, so I went to, to the sergeant and I said, I, we would like to apply for, the, for this Raider, this commando outfit. And he said, get back to the barracks and don't bother me, you know. They're all filled up. And uh, that's what we heard, that they had filled up because they had been recruiting while we were en route back. They, so this guy and I decided that night we would, that the following that was, we would sneak off and, and go see what we could find out about this guy Carlson we'd heard about. And we looked around the back of the camp out in the boondocks, and there was this great big old beat-up looking uh, barracks. And there was a guy standing there, and we said, we're looking for Carlson. He said, he's in there. So we went in there and uh, and uh, we the guy and I began going in all these empty rooms this is an old beat up place and I opened an office and there's this tall looking Lincoln-esque kind of a guy in a marine uniform he's sitting there at a little crappy table and he's writing something in a notebook and he looked up and he said can I help you son I said I'm looking for Major Carlson he said I'm Carlson 
He said, what can I do for you? I said, I want to join the Raiders. So he said, sit down. And, and we began to talk. And, you know, they, he said, we're all filled up, you know. He said, we got a lot more men than we need. And I said, well, that's not fair because we just got back, you know, and, and I'd like a shot at it. He said, okay, you have a, a point. And then he began asking me questions, you know. Would you cut your buddy's throat if he was panicky behind the lines and stuff like that? It was fairly melodramatic stuff. And I answered what I thought he wanted to hear. Then I got out of there. He said, well, he said, you'll hear from us in a day or so. You go back to your unit. So when I got out, my buddy came out too, and he had run into James Roosevelt in another room on the other side. And he had gone through the same routine. Would you stab a Japanese in the back? Would you do this? Would you do And he'd answer yes. But we found out later a lot of guys would say, no, I couldn't kill my best buddy. So they would say, thank you very much. Go back to your unit. I got back, and sure enough, the first, you know, the first sergeant was waiting for us. He said, I thought I told you, you eight balls, not to leave this camp. He said, okay, get back to your quarters, and I'll take care of you. So I thought, well, court-martial. The next morning, a guy comes running out, and he says, Lansford, uh, pack your sea bag. He said, right away. Here, there's a truck waiting for you guys out there. He told the other guy, too, there's a truck waiting for you out there. So we, we were already packed, so we just got out there into the company street, and there's the first sergeant. And, and he looked at me, you know, like this, and we got up on the truck, and as the truck started up, he said, I hope you get killed. <laughs> That's how I started my war. The next thing I was, we were at Jack Swam training with the Raiders. We had heard a lot of stuff by that time about the Raiders, you know, because the newspapers were trying to find out what was going on and it was very hush-hush and all that. Basically, we moved into this, into this great big empty boondocks, you know, where they had used, they used for a tank park, you know, they would park their, the Marine Corps would park its tanks there one time, it was called Jack's Farm. Anyway, uh, I was assigned to a company and, uh, you know, with a lot, with a, a whole bunch of people I didn't know and we were indoctrinated, that was the first thing. Carlson brought us together and at that time I think he was a major, he had just come back into the Marines. And uh, he was a major, and, and he, he and Jimmy Roosevelt had a, built like a little platform, and they would get up there, and then they would, they would call it what we call a gung-ho meeting. Later on, it became a gung-ho meeting. And they would explain what our objectives were, and they were terrific. You know, they would give you a, a whole indoctrination and tell you why we were doing these things, and also tell you not to believe all that nonsense, you know, that... We would be relatively safe if we learned the principles of guerrilla warfare. And we were armed, and they had a lot of experimental weapons there. And, and uh, we were told that there would be no saluting. Uh, everybody was of equal rank, regardless of whether they were captains, lieutenants, anything. we call each other by our first names. And instead of saluting, whenever 
two men met, they would instantly go for their guns and they would snap at at each other, you know, you know, pull the trigger to see which one would win. There were a lot of arguments. I got you first. No, I got you first. And you know that. But we were we averaged about eighteen, nineteen years of age. Anyway, there was during the training there were casualties. Uh, there were about three guys that I can remember. One of them got shot through the jaw. Another guy got shot in the belly. You know, because when we would snap shoot. Sometimes some, there's always some dumbbell, you know, who forgot to unload his weapon. But the old man considered that to be part of the training, too. You know, you had to know what you were doing. And because he, he always stressed that in combat there would be no second chances. And he was right, as always. The training never stopped. I mean, Carlson and Roosevelt believed in, that the, you couldn't be overtrained. And we continued training even after we left. Uh, Jack's farm, and we shipped out overseas and went into various staging areas. We continued the training all the time, constantly. The um, and uh, you had to be on, you had to be on your toes because the kind of stuff that they were teaching us, like sneaking up on people and like grabbing a guy from behind and and throwing him, or like defending yourself against. He was an Carlson was an early adherent of, of, of Asian or Oriental, as we call it then, uh, combat, you know, close combat, close contact combat, because as he, as it was proven later on, you know, it, that did happen more than people suspect. And he wanted us to always be very keen. It's like going to judo lessons now. In those days, Jiu-Jitsu was considered some crazy oriental thing that uh, white guys didn't do, you know. But he believed that you did do it. And, and that was a kind of training where you had to, like a good boxer, you always had to keep that edge. So the training never really ended. The, the purpose of the gung-ho meetings was, was to indoctrinate us, as I said earlier. And part of that indoctrination was philosophical. Now, later on, Carlson was accused by a lot of jealous uh, establishment Marines, I'm sorry to say, you know, generals, colonels, people who were really jealous of this man uh, and actively hated him, you know, sometimes. He was accused of being a, a commie, a pinko, uh, uh, you know, being more ch Chinese than American and all that nonsense because he had spent a lot of time studying the Chinese tactics, marching with the with Mao and the Eight Root Army. He had made that 1,000-mile march with the Chinese. Uh, and But the fact of the matter was that I, I don't, I mean, I think if you put him up against President Roosevelt or, or George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, I mean, you would have a guy that fitted in perfectly. His father had been a Congregationalist minister, and and Carlson really believed in God. But I mean, really, he was a real Christian in the sense that he loved people, and he protected people. And as far as being an American, I'll tell you, our gung-ho meetings opened by singing, we sang the Star Spangled Banner. That was the first, that's how we opened them. And we closed them by singing Onward Christian Soldiers. And during the course of it, we, we pledged allegiance to the flag. Now, how American can you get?
Carlson explained his his um, the time that he uh, talked a great deal about the time he had spent with Miles Gorillas and the tactics that Miles Gorillas had used, and he's and and in order to defeat the Japanese. One of the reasons why Carlson had gotten out of the out of the Marine Corps was because he was actually, and this is a, something that a lot of people didn't know, he was actually acting as an American agent for President Roosevelt and discovering all that he could unofficially about what the Japanese were doing in places like China, you know, places where they had already invaded. And Carlson was studying the Chinese. For example, one of the stories he told us about this one night when he was with the with the uh, with Miles Gorillas, and they got word that they were going to attack a, a Japanese convoy. He said that that early that evening they took off, you know, trotting, half running, half walking, with all this equipment because they had no nowhere to run. They they covered 50 miles. At dawn, they attacked the, the enemy or thereabouts. I, you know, it, my memory is not what it used to be, but they attacked the enemy convoy. They just chopped it to pieces. And before the Japanese could reinforce, get themselves reorganized and come after the Chinese, they'd gone back. They, they arrived back at their base the following day. I mean, in one day they had gone, they had destroyed a convoy, and they had run back. And this was all done on foot. There, and this is what he said. This is what you have to do. He, he would sometimes get us up early in the morning while it was still dark, and he'd say, "Boys, we're going to do 20 miles with full packs, all weapons, helmets, everything. No breakfast until we get back." And off we'd go, and we'd do the 20 miles and get back. I couldn't do two miles today. But that's the kind of a man he was, and I mean dedication plus. He would make a brief address, and he would uh, tell us what the objectives were. He would give us what amounted to a geopolitical analysis of what was going on at that time, uh, you know, in various parts of the world, and how that affected our mission. He would explain to us, well, he said, I went to see uh, Admiral Nimitz, and I said to him, we're ready, Admiral, we're waiting, uh, what can we do, and so forth. But the reality was that the, the establishment didn't really know how to use a raider battalion. They didn't, and Edson ran into the same thing where he was. They didn't know how to use them. But he would explain to us, and, and stay ready because we're going to get a job, And so he got them a job, but not perhaps what they had bargained for. Carlson had been very concerned about the continuing vulnerability of Hawaii to attack. And so to make his point, he committed his raiders to invade the island of Hawaii in front of the top commanders in the Pacific, a move that almost cost him his career. There was a great big stand, you know, like a football stand, and... And all the, all, all the brass was up there, you know, admirals, generals, 
You couldn't believe it. Army, Navy, Air Force, everything. They were sitting there like they were going to watch us perform, like we were performing monkeys. Well, it was a maneuver, and we had to take it seriously. And Carlson said, we're going to do this exactly the way we would pull a raid anywhere. We're going to get to Lulule, and and we're going to take it. Well, we believed anything he told us. So we we made our landing, and it was like somebody was shooting a movie. You know, here we're making a landing, and over here, just off the scene, there's admirals and generals and all these and senators and what have you watching us. And we land, and there is a line of, I don't know, they must have had 2,000 sailors, marines, um, soldiers, all armed with live ammunition. And we landed and and started sneaking past the barbed wire. Well, it was daylight, and we they could see how we cut the barbed wire and what we did and all that. But we did it in a way that it wouldn't set off any alarms, and that was logical. It was They had referees, and we had done it properly. We went inside the barbed wire, and then we camped in there. Well, Al Flores, uh, who was one of my two closest buddies in the, in the Raiders, he was here from Los Angeles, uh, and I were both probably the darkest guys in our company. He was a Mexican kid. So we were assigned the job. We carried civilian clothes in our pack, and we were assigned a job of becoming civilians as soon as possible, getting away and going forward and scouting out this area. I was a scout. That's what we did, and machine gunners. So we got into our clothes and you know, dressed like civilians, sneaked off under the bushes and all that and made our way towards Lua and began mapping everything. They, it, and I won't tell you our story because that's too complicated, but we ended up being chased by the MPs and, and, and really having literally to run for our lives because they were trying to kill us. They thought we were real spies. Meanwhile, the... the there were 800 Marines there, you know, raiders. And that night, as soon as it got to be night, we had all the campfires and everything. The, the old man sent the advanced troops, and they began to cut like a rabbit hole under the, under the brush. It was cactus, you know, the, like this kind of cactus you see in the cowboy movies. And they began to cut a hole through the cactus, like a rabbit hole, and all 800 Marines went through that little tunnel, through the cactus, through the grass, and out, out of sight. And in the morning, but it came morning, there wasn't a Marine left there. There wasn't a Raider left. This guy said, where did they go? Where did they go? And this is all true. I know it sounds fantastic. Carlson then started the guys going through the mountain, through the roughest terrain you can imagine, and, the, and they were to approach Lua Lua Lay from behind. And behind it was a huge swamp, and it wasn't guarded because all the guards were in front. They had barbed wire. They had a constant patrol around the, the camp, and the raiders went around the back, crossed, they, you know, laid down planks, crossed, got into the Lulule, grabbed the colonel at gunpoint, the guy that was in charge, grabbed all the guards, bound them up, you know, tied them up at gunpoint and all that, and, and we took over the whole place. And then just for good measure, the old man had us take the trucks and, 
and, you know, the vehicles, and then go over to a nearby airport, and then we took stickers that had a Raider picture on them and stuck them on all the airplanes, and it said, your airplane has just been blown up. Man, I tell you, there was such an uproar the following day, and, I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing that endeared Carlson to the high command. We had completely taken over everything, and we had tied them up like pigs, you know, and they were enraged. The high command was just enraged. I mean, Carlson couldn't do anything right after that, except with Papa Nimitz. And so, they were shipped off to the New Hebrides, to Espiritu Santo, to await their new deployment, the embattled island of Guadalcanal. And we were totally isolated from everybody. We had nothing. Uh, you know, we just lived like on on nothing practically and while we were waiting for employment and that employment you know came around you know it was Guadalcanal had been invaded and uh, and we were finally we got an assignment to go into Guadalcanal and uh, and help uh, you know the effort there they, the Marines were very hard pressed you know they've done a wonderful job but I mean they were virtually isolated too fighting on nothing uh, and we had come in to escort some army troops who were supposed to, I guess it was an, partly an engineer or unit, they were supposed to make a new airfield at Iola Point, you know, a distance away from, uh, near the coastline, away from Henderson Field. And it turned out the place was a swamp, you know. The, the uh, admiral who had ordered this thing was, a, in my view, a dumbbell and, and I interviewed a lot of other people. He thought he was a general, you know, and he knew best. Well, anyway, it turned out it was a swamp, so it was nothing doing. The poor army guys were just hanging around there, and, and, and the raiders had nothing to do. Um, then Carlson got, got a call from, from General Vandegrift, the, com the commander of the island, to, to come in and see him. That's the story as I remember, to come in and see him. And then they, Vandegrift and his staff asked Carlson, uh, Tor Carlson, that intelligence indicated that a Japanese regiment, a fresh regiment, had landed just a few miles up from where we were. And could Carlson do anything to intercept them? Because they were heading for Henderson Field, and they were going to reinforce the Japanese troops there, and, and very probably... Uh, attack the Marines again and try to take the field back. And the Marines were, you know, they were hungry, they were tired. So Carlson said, okay, that he would undertake the job of intercepting this this Japanese regiment. So he came back to us, and Carlson uh, returned from uh, conferring with, uh, with the Marines there around Henderson Field and said that we had an assignment to knock out this Japanese regiment. And uh, that's what we were going to do. So that started what later on became one of, you know, one of the Raiders' chief accomplishments, which was, they call it the, the I forgot, the Long March or something behind the Japanese lines. And what we did essentially was Carlson sent for the rest of the Raiders and we um, just followed the Japanese all the way from from their landing point to Henderson Field and just kept chopping and chopping and chopping at them. And it was probably the, 
I, I guess along with Macon Island is probably the, the job that best exemplify the kind of work that we were trying to do. And we would catch these guys. We were, Carlson would, would keep track of them. You know, uh, I was one of the scouts, and we'd keep track of where these guys were. And as soon as they started to cross the river with their equipment up, we'd hit them. Bango. Carlson had developed many uh, unorthodox, you might say, techniques, you know, combat techniques. One of them was, and he seldom gets credit for this, everybody else takes credit for it, but one of them was the, uh, the uh, fire group, which, was, which gave tremendous mobility and firepower to the marine squads, and it's used today. The other one was extensive use of walkie-talkie radios by which the officers were able to keep, you know, the company officers were able to communicate with each other and coordinate their attacks. And consequently, we had a lot of mobility that the Japanese didn't have. And, you know, it was a whole regiment, and we were just working in, in, in teams of maybe one or two companies at the most, and we were able to hit them and then disappear into the jungle, which must have galled the Japanese because they were supposed to be the great jungle fighters. And we would hit them and disappear into the jungle and then a few hours later locate them and hit them again. And um, the result was that that after 30 days of, of following and hitting these poor guys, the regiment ceased to exist. You know, it, when, it, when it arrived at its destination, it was useless. It was, uh, and my understanding is that the colonel burned his flag and shot himself, and that was the end of that effort. A general twining who at that time was a colonel and was the chief planner for Vandegrift and the, and the Guadalcanal campaign, uh, wrote in his book, uh, I think it's called uh, No Bended Knee, I think the book, that it was the most perfectly executed campaign of the, of the entire Guadalcanal uh, fight, of the entire Guadalcanal campaign. And Carlson did that. We were able to kill, you know, literally hundreds of Japanese and, and lose only, you know, a, a fraction of that in raiders. I think in one, in one time, I think we knocked off about 50 of them at Asamana, uh, and uh, we lost three raiders there, as I recall. But uh, the odds were always that way, you know. They, the, the Japanese, the Japanese were not. They, they didn't expect that Americans would be able to do that. And I think, if nothing else, justifies what Carl's, Carlson's philosophy that that does. I'm not saying it very well, but I mean, I think that justifies a whole Raider effort right there. That, and of course, Edson.
the first writers did a magnificent job on on what they call Edson's Ridge, you know. Uh, defending Guadalcanal one night, he won the Medal of Honor for that. So, you know, the first writers, you can't take it away from them either. They were doing a great job. And later on, the other writer battalions, the third and the fourth, uh, one of them was headed by Jimmy Roosevelt, did a marvelous job too. The main thing was that you had to have, I think you had to have a lot of stamina. You had to be able to, to live on nothing. During that 30-day raid behind the Japanese lines, we lived, literally lived on rice and tea and a little bit of bacon occasionally. That was our whole diet during that period. And uh, they would air, they, Carlson had developed a system of airdropping food to us. But, you know, airdropping was a primitive thing at that time, and half the time I think the Japanese got our food more than we did. <laughs> but uh, we would cook in our helmets, I remember. Start a little fire and, and, and put rice and water in our helmet, and if you had any bacon, you'd, you know, you'd break up little pieces and drop it in there. And uh, sometimes we had salt and sometimes we didn't. Each man was issued every few days, I can't remember how often, each raider was issued as much rice as he, as he could hold in his sock up to the heel. And then we would tie the, tie the sock on our belt, I remember, and as much tea as you could, you know, hold up to, to the middle of the, of, the, of the foot of the sock, you know, the foot section. And, and that's what we lived on, tea and rice. It wasn't a great diet. When that was left of the Japanese regiment arrived at Henderson Field, they were, you know, they were demoralized and decimated, and and the the regiment was essentially destroyed. And as I said, you know, uh, I heard later on that the colonel burned his flag, the regimental flag, and shot himself. And that was it. You know, they just were useless. They just scattered, and and they never made the effort against. Against, uh, they never were able to reinforce or make any effort against uh, Henderson Field, and uh, the Raiders were credited with having killed at least four, four hundred and some known enemy casualties. The jealousy and the nitpicking and the, the backbiting that existed against the Raiders was not is not from the rank and file of the of the regular Marines, because they really, I mean, they I I feel from what they said to us, you know, when we got together, that they really admired the work we were doing. It was the very high rank, you know, the the generals and the admirals, they were they were sniping at Carlson, but the Marines always treated us great, and they, and they thanked us for the work we were doing and the fact that we'd gone out there. When we came back, I remember talking to some of the Marines from, I think it was the 7th Regiment, who were holding the line, and when we came through their lines, they actually looked at us as they were seeing ghosts. We were the skinniest, most beat-up, dirty, 
bedraggled bunch that they said that they had ever seen. They couldn't believe it. They, one of the guys said, you guys look like ghosts coming through the line. You look like skeletons. And we, that's, we'd been living on rice for 30 days and, and tea. And when we came through, that Marine regiment just ran us right through their chai line. They happened, as we were coming in, they were getting ready to eat, and they just made way for us. They said, hey, Raiders, come on, eat. And boy, did we pig out. <laughs> their food just tasted like it was the greatest food that ever existed. It was, and I, this is regular Marine food. But they just stood aside and just fed us, you know, feed these guys. And then they couldn't stop talking to us. How was it back there? And gee, did you guys see a lot of Japs? And gosh, and, uh, we heard about what you were doing. And it was never the rank and file Marines that, that had that feeling. Having won the respect of their peers, the Raiders were here to stay. The terrible commando-style jungle action at Guadalcanal had forged them into a tempered, razor-sharp fighting force. But the costs of their heroism were yet to be known. I think that, I think Guadalcanal was, was probably the, the defining moment for the, the Raider technique, you know, the thing that Carlson had been wanting to do. Many, many of the guys in the Raiders, especially in the Guadalcanal campaign, suffered because that was a prolonged campaign suffered from all kinds of jungle rot and ulceration and, and, uh, and of course, you know, malaria. You know, we lived on these pills. We would take these malaria pills, Atterburn, I think it was called, and everybody would turn yellow, you know. And, uh, and you know, a terrible diet. And the guys were very weak. We were just, towards the end, we were staggering around. Uh, when when you took your boots off, you know, to, to try to wash your feet after a long march, uh, your socks would stick to your feet. And when you pull the socks off, it would pull the, the, the ulcers off, and then your feet would start bleeding. Every day after, every day after um, a, a long march in the evenings, that we would have foot inspection, and the carmen would come by, and those carmen would just, I can't say enough about the carmen, how great those guys are. And they would come by, and they would look at our feet, and then they would say, you have to go back, you, you have to go back, and you know, and they would send us back through the lines. Then one day, my day came, and when, you know, I took my socks off and I began bleeding and there was bleeding blood on my boots and all that. And the carman said, you got to go back now. And I said, you know, no matter what happened in the Raider Battalion, if you didn't like what happened, you could always appeal directly to Carlson or you could appeal to Jimmy Roosevelt, which was most unusual. None of this going through the, you know, through the first sergeant and all that. You just go directly to him. So I... I said, I want to talk to the old man, and Carlson came up and he said, "What is it, son?" And I said, "I said, you know, I'm okay. I want to, I want to, I want to stay. I, I don't want to go back. Uh, you know, we're almost done here." And then he said, uh, "Let's look at your feet." And he looked at at my feet and he said, "Son," and he said, "You got to go back." 
I said, no, sir, you said that if we wanted to stick, we could stick. And he said, all right, let me put it to you this way. He said, what happens if your feet totally give out in the middle of the march and we're not in, in a position to send you back? He said, then I have to assign one or two guys to carry you, and that slows us up, and the enemy, and, and we're prey to the enemy. He said, do you want that to happen? I said, no. He said, put your boots on and go back. <laughs> That's the way he always talked to people. He was wonderful. After the campaign, we went to New Zealand, and we were supposed to have two weeks of R&R. I think we had like five days, actually, before they called us back on something else. And Al Flores, my buddy, and another buddy, Jack Johnstone, and I can't remember, there were a couple of other guys and myself walking down the street of New Zealand when all of a sudden a, a cab or whatever it was came by and backfired, and we just disappeared into the... You know, the, one guy was down in the gutter and another guy was down in the stairway that went down like that. And when, when I looked up, there were all these ladies and, you know, the civilians looking at us like we were crazy. We had all scattered and hit the deck. That's, people, you know, the, a lot of the guys went a little bit psycho too. Some of the guys got pretty battle happy. Uh, uh, they... You know, they would not let go of their guns. They they always had a hand grenade with them. I mean, you know, really eccentric. We didn't think we were eccentric at all. Um, but I guess we did act act weird, you know. And, and uh, I, when, I, when I was in the hospital, um, I kept... I kept my pistol and I kept the hand grenade with me all the time. I, and the doctors tried to take it away from me and I wouldn't give it up. And they made me, they told me to get the hell out of there. They were, they, they were talking about chopping off my legs because, you know, the, the infections were so bad. I left the hospital holding the pistol and the hand grenade. It sounds very melodramatic, but it didn't seem unnatural to me. It just set, seemed like defensive. And there were other guys that were even worse than I was. And I, I went out of there and I was, I, I found a man who was experimenting, you know, to cure this ulceration. His name was Wartell. And, and he, and I was walking out of the hospital. They kicked me out, you know. If I wouldn't give up the weapons, get the hell out of here. Uh, and, and, and I left. And I was looking for my unit, and I saw this sign, and it said, Wartell's Bird Sanctuary. And there was a bunch of white, beautiful white tents. And I, I said, who's Wartell? And there was a guy there, and he had a half a sailor outfit and half a marine outfit. And he said, I'm Wartell. He said, welcome. He said, what's your problem? And I told him I got kicked out of the hospital. Oh, he said, well, he said, look at these guys. They all got kicked out of the hospital. There's a bunch of guys in there all half psycho and he said what what have you got and he you know he raised my pants and he looked at my legs and he said oh he said I can help you with that if you want to stay here uh, so I said sure you know what do you do here he said I do experimenting he said I'm not a doctor I'm just a corpsman but they let me experiment here would you like me to try some things on you anyway cutting through you know I was there with Wartell for a couple of weeks and he pretty much fixed me up, you know, he
clear the whole thing up. And he said, there's no need for amputation. And I can tell you this, that hospital was a pig pen, the one I was in. Later on, Bortel developed a, some medicine that, that could take care of the ulceration. I mean, you know, it was effective. And the guy that ran the hospital, uh, uh, Commodore, took credit for it. He got a, he got a legion of merit. And Wartell got a quick trip to New Zealand, you know, to a psycho ward. He actually cracked up, you know, because, uh, again, like Carlson, you know, he had been outranked and, <laughs> and, he, and had been kicked out of his job. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Sometime after the war, my buddy, uh, El Flores, who had been in the Raiders with me, uh, and another guy came over to me and they told me that they were having a Raider convention in Santa Monica. And I had not heard anything about anything like that. But anyway, uh, they wanted me to go with them, and I did. And there's all these guys who were still pretty young. All of these guys are boozing it up, you know, and, and telling each other war stories and all that. There was that whole bunch of old Raiders. Except that now they were incorporating, you know, the all the four Raider battalions, and they call themselves the U.S. Marine Raider Association. I think, I think that was the name they had at that time too. And I saw a lot of the guys that I had not seen in in years, and it was really great. You know, I I've never been a big joiner, but being around those guys was really terrific because that had been a big experience in my life. I was 23 when I got out of the service so so you know and and now i guess we were like it was after after uh korea yeah so it must have been in the 55 or something like that and i hadn't seen those guys in all that time and it was just great and so i joined the raider association just so i could see them and i'm, I'm still a member and and we get together, and uh, you can see that most of us are not exactly spring chickens anymore. But we still get in there, and we still tell each other the same old war stories. And and instead of being able to down a bottle of bourbon now, you know, we're lucky to get half a beer down. But but it's, it's still great seeing those guys. So they're... That consists of all four battalions. I think I mentioned that as the first, second, you know, Carlson. Jimmy Roosevelt ended up with his own battalion uh, after he left uh, uh, Carlson. And uh, I can't remember the rest of them. While these men have been able to enjoy the memories of their accomplishments, others were not so fortunate. One of the less rewarded members of the Raiders was Evans Carlson himself. I, by the time that 
by that by that time I had been writing I had begun writing and there was a great demand for war stories in the magazines in New York and I was writing a lot about the Raiders and I was writing I wrote that story about Lua Lua Lay that's why I remembered that and I wrote some stories about Bougainville and all that and some of the guys that I knew and uh, so I because I was doing research all the time I was aware of what was happening with Carlson Carlson started to run for Congress, but he had been very badly wounded. He, he was physically in terrible condition by that time. I think he was about 48, 49, and he had been urged to run for Congress and, uh, and had agreed to do it. But he had been wounded very badly. I think it was in Saipan. Uh, what happened was, you know, typical of Carlson, a young PFC was hit during the fighting, and Carlson was just an observer. They never gave him a command anymore. They just hated him too much. Like I said, they gave him another Navy Cross and a Legion of Merit and a whole bunch of stuff, but no command of his own. And Carlson was there as an observer, and some young boy, 19, got hit. Great big kid. Carlson ran out. I mean, here he was. He was a bird colonel. He ran out there, picked the kid up, threw him on his um, on his shoulder, and started running back into the lines with him. And at that point, an enemy automatic weapon opened up on him. The same one, I guess, that hit the boy and hit Carlson. Got him, I guess, in the shoulder or in the back. And as late as 1940 seven or whenever it was that he died he had not fully recovered from that he 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 just couldn't shake it you know physically he had burned himself out in this raider effort totally burned himself out physically and he he couldn't shake it and and he he had a heart attack and and then another one and and he went he says that he said to his wife, I've broken down like the old one-horse shay. And shortly after he died, he, he would have been a wonderful senator, I think. I was devastated. Everybody was. Every guy that had served under him was devastated by his death. He was such a wonderful man. And even today, I was, I went back to, when I went to Korea, I was an officer then. And I, I remember our, I, I went to visit a Marine unit, and there was this uh, uh, Marine warrant officer of the Marines, and he was talking to some NCOs there, and he was talking all about, all oh, the Raiders this and the Raiders that, ah, they didn't do anything, blah, 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 blah. And, and I said to the guy, um, I said, you know, I was a Raider with Carlson. He said, oh, yeah, Carlson. He was a pinko, wasn't he? At that point, I knocked him over a table. I had a jeep out there, and I said to my sergeant, let's get the hell out of here. But, I mean, even as late as Korea, you had blabbermouths like that who were saying that Carlson was a, a communist. That's a damn lie. The media, of course, loved 
loves to sensationalize anything, you know. And I remember when we were in training at Jack's farm, some guy was circulating a story, you know. He had a newspaper and he was showing us the, the newspaper and there was a, a whole feature in it. Some guy had visited the camp while we were training and he had written about these raiders. They were all massive, powerful men and... and and when we were in training, you know, there was a guy that stood next to us and threw animal blood in our faces so that we could smell the blood and, and get used to killing and all that, which, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, El Flores, my buddy that I keep mentioning, was five feet, four inches tall. I mean, he was a little guy. Admittedly, he was the littlest guy in the Raiders and some energetic sergeant. I said, you know, you always got a jerk in every outfit. Some sergeant decided he was too small and he had to kick L out of the Marines, out of the Raiders, rather. And, and, and L was incensed, you know, and, and he went to see Colonel Carlson because you could always go see Carlson about anything. And he said, the Colonel, they're trying to get rid of me. And he said, who? And he said, well, the sergeant says I'm too little and all that. He said, you want to stay in the Raiders? Yes, sir. He said, you still willing to go on with us? Yes, sir. And he said, I'll carry a B.A.R. to show that S.O.B. how little I am. The colonel said, you don't have to. He said, just tell him I said to leave you alone. And L stayed in, and on Guadalcanal, he won a silver star, which is, I think, the third or fourth highest decoration we give. When Al was dying of, of cancer in the Veterans Hospital here at Wattsworth, uh, my wife and I went to visit him. And, you know, his family was there. And, and he was, in his mind, was reliving the old days. He was lying there in bed with his tubes and all that. And he's reliving the old days. And he, and he said, do you remember when we did this? Remember how we went through the lines? He said, you remember when you had to go back and I took you through the Japanese lines? And the, Yeah, I, I remember. And then he, he took my arm like this and he said, we must have been crazy, Bill. And then he turned and said to my wife, we must have been crazy. Yeah, he died two days later. But he was a great guy. And they, all of those guys were great guys. I remember another buddy of mine, Jack Johnstone. And just before we left for Guadalcanal, he was sharpening his gung-ho knife. You know, we had these big knives we call gung-ho knives. And sharpening it, and he sliced his, his hand. And he was told he couldn't go on the campaign. And he came to us, and he started crying because he couldn't go with us. And... Not too long after that, in about the middle of the campaign in Guadalcanal, he showed up, and he was all still bandaged, but oh, he was so happy. Hey, I told you guys I'd catch up with you, then you're not going to go off by yourselves and all that. That was the kind of spirit that existed among those men. Great guys. You know, at the time, we didn't evaluate one another, and but Carlson trained us so well, in my view, and in the view of others, too, that actually, far from being a suicide 
outfit. I mean, in my mind, I mean, it seems like it should have been a suicide outfit, but actually, we were so well trained that that we, I think, we have fewer casualties than the average Marine unit did. I think the enemy is the one that had the big casualties when we met, not us. And I'm not boasting that. That was just good training and and the heightened instincts and all that. I I think that we lost more more of the Raiders uh, in conventional fighting on Iwo Jima than we did, you know, in all the Guadalcanal and all the other Raider campaigns for that matter. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the Raiders bought the farm on that island. And, uh, but, but I think that that being in, our attitude always was that being in the Raider Battalion was the safest place to be, you know, because of the tremendous firepower, because of the guys around you that knew what they were doing, and because of the of the training that Carlson had given us. We always felt very safe, and I think that we had relatively low casualty figures compared to to regular Marine outfits. In effect, the Marines that were admiring the Raiders were, I think, were suffering more casualties than the Raiders were. When we became regular troops, when I went into the 5th Division and we landed in Guadalcanal, we lost more Raiders on that campaign than I think that we did in the entire Raider experience because it was a whole different thing. I mean, you know... Guadalcanal, when, from the time we went in, you know, we, we just got blasted with artillery and, and mortar, fire on the beach and all that. And, and I kept hearing, hey, you hear what happened to this guy and that guy? And, oh, Brownie got hit by artillery and, and he lost his leg up to here and he bled to death and that kind of stuff. Brownie was one of our raiders, I remember, a good guy. But you have no defense against an artillery shell coming in on you. All the training in the world is not going to do you a damn bit of good then. And that's what happened to a lot of the old Raiders. They ended up there. Just like John Bassalon ended up there. That, that was a, a hell of a campaign. Except for when we have the conventions or when I some old Raider calls me up, as one did recently, a buddy of mine, El Germanco, I mean, uh, Sal Germanco, who was on a machine gun with me. Unless some, something like that happens, I don't really think about it very much. But when I get the Raider patch, which is our, you know, official association paper, I, no matter what I'm doing, I stop and I read the whole damn thing and, um, and remember a little bit about it. But, you know, it comes out three times a year, I think. And other than that, you know, life goes on. You don't really think, you, you don't sit around dwelling on it, you know, the charge of the light brigade and all that sort of thing. Just most of these guys came out and picked up their lives and had children and all that. And once in a while you think of the guys that didn't have that chance, you know, to continue their lives, who didn't marry and, and have children and, and have a, a normal existence, you know, the, the guys you left behind when they were 18 and 19 years old. But it's not something that we sit around thinking about all the time.
the movie about gung, uh, gung-ho with um, Randall Scott was Carlson and so forth. I mean, you know, it, it was a, I guess it was a good movie, uh, you know, but I could never sit through it because I kept seeing these guys imitating real people. And it wasn't that they weren't doing a good job, but, you know, when you do a movie... I mean, everything is kind of exaggerated. You can't just, a guy doesn't just sit there and say, uh, we just got ambushed over here. We lost about 28 men, you know. And the other guy says, well, okay, I guess we got to go the other way. You know, it's, it's dramatic. Colonel, we've just been ambushed. <laughs> everything is very broad. And it wasn't that way. I guess in real life, it would have been pretty boring if they'd made a movie out of the way it really was. And we didn't think, oh, gee, what a great bunch of guys. And it sounds like self-aggrandizement even today because, you know, the, the implication is, oh, those were great, tough guys. Jesus, I must have been a great guy to be one of them, you know. But it's not like that. We don't think of each other that way. We just have a kind of a sense of gratitude and camaraderie and, and uh, you know, some pride that we were even allowed to be a part of a group like that. I, I feel that. I feel privileged. There was a time when, when the Raiders were needed and these guys were there. And later on, when they were no longer needed, uh, you know, that was the end. During their short history, the Marine Raiders performed some of the most daring acts of World War II willing to go anywhere on a moment's notice, kill without question, and endure unbelievable hardships to get the job done. They represent the essence of the American fighting man. We are and will always be deeply indebted to their spirit, the spirit that to this day lets freedom ring. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld, Brian Donovan, and Rod Pyle. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.